Again, I want to invite you to grab a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, like I said, it's good to be here. We're closing out our series through the book of James. We've been walking through James pretty much all summer, and I think God has a good word for us today. We'll be in verses 13 through 20. And as you're turning there, I just want to share a story that I heard uh, about a year ago now about a man making a road trip through the state of California. Uh, show of hands, any Californians in the room? Yeah, a couple of you guys, right, you might relate, I'd be able to corroborate a couple aspects of this story. True story, I'll preface it with that, uh, but there was a man making a road trip across the state of California uh, from Northern California, the San Francisco area, to the middle of the state, and he wanted to do it overnight. And so he had dinner, uh, had his coffee, energy drink, whatever he was prepping himself with, um, and then after dinner, he gets in his car and starts driving. And as he hits the road, uh, the highway's busy at first, and then as it starts to get late, cars drop off the highway, and then it's basically just him and a couple cars. And here's this phenomenon that I shared with the 8 a.m. I wonder if you guys see this too. Uh, when you're making a late night road trip by yourself and there's like one or two other cars on the highway and you're with a certain car for a long time, isn't there like a sense of, of like a kindred spirit there? Like, okay, we're in this together, right? And so I know that's the case for me. And then whenever I'm driving and that car turns off, it's like, oh, man, bye, friend. Um, that's how I feel. Anyway, this guy's driving down the middle of the road late at night, um, and he's like that, right? There are a couple of cars uh, ahead of him, a couple of cars behind him. Um, but as the minutes turn into hours and it gets later and later and later, the road gets emptier and emptier. Midnight comes and goes, and all of a sudden it's one or two o'clock in the morning. He's driving along the road, and then all of a sudden, without warning, the road starts to shake, like tremble beneath the car. And again, if you're a Californian, you could tell us what's going on. He's experiencing an earthquake. Like the highway beneath his car is shaking. And so he, he's from California. He knows what to do in these types of situations. And so he pulls his car off to the side of the road and waits for it to stop. 10, 15 seconds go by. The shaking stops. He looks at his dashboard, no blinking yellow, orange, or red lights. He decides to pull back onto the highway and keep going like it's no big deal. The car, one car with taillights a couple miles ahead of him did the same thing. So after the earthquake, he gets back on the road, back on the highway, and starts driving again, 60, 70 miles an hour, headed towards the middle of the state, hoping to make it there by morning. About 10 to 15 minutes after the earthquake, again, driving along, keeping the same distance between himself and this car ahead of him, without warning, the taillights of the car he's been driving with ahead of him vanish, like into thin air, just gone. And this is unusual. The man thinks, okay, maybe he broke down, maybe he turned his taillights off, it's possible something just happened. So as he gets closer to the spot in the road where he thinks the taillights vanish, the man goes from like 70, 65 miles an hour, and he slows because he doesn't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, pretty much without warning, he's forced to slam on the brakes. His car screeches to a halt, 
only five to ten feet before a drop-off. Much like this, the edge of a stage. The man gets out of his car, shaking, walks to the edge of the drop-off, and sees about a hundred feet below the wreckage of the car that was in front of him. There's no movement. So it appears that at some point during the earthquake, the highway had shifted. And a chasm was created. And that car, having no warning, had careened off the side of the highway down to destruction. And so imagine being this man in this moment. He's looking over the side of this cliff, trying to process real trauma, recognizing rightly that he's looking at loss of life. And so in this moment, he's trying to figure out what to do. Like, do I call 911? But go and see if the guy's still alive, like if there's any way I can help. And, and before he can come to a decision, behind him, a couple miles down the road on the dark highway, appear another set of headlights speeding towards him on the dark highway. And instantly this man realizes, if I don't warn this car, this other car is going to meet the same fate as the first car. They're going to head right off the cliff, down the ravine, into this cliff, and they'll be destroyed. So the man knows what I think any of us would do. He starts waving his arms above his head on the side of the road, jumping up and down, yelling and screaming, imploring this car to stop. But think about it. I mean, if you were driving down the highway in the middle of the night and you see a guy waving his arms above his head, screaming at you, would you stop? No, this car doesn't. And to his horror, he watches as the car races off the cliff down to destruction. At this point, the man's telling the story, his tears are streaming down his face as he realizes he's facing what looks like catastrophic loss of life. He's got his phone ready to call 911, and then before he can even do that, he turns behind him, and on the highway coming towards him is a 55-passenger bus. And here's where I want to quote him. The man later said, I decided in that moment that the only way the bus was going over the cliff is if it was taking me with it. So the man runs into the road. Before he was on the side, this time he runs into the road, physically blocking the way. Takes his shirt off, waves it above his head, and is screaming, imploring this bus to stop. The bus is hurtling towards him at 70 miles an hour. Starts blaring on the horn, comes to a stop. And the driver gets out furious at this crazy guy, making a fool of himself in the middle of a dark highway in California only seconds later to fall on his face in gratitude. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here's the question we're going to be asking ourselves during our time today, all throughout this text, are we the type of church family that would do this? Are we the type of church family that would walk into the road, shirts above our heads, doing whatever it takes to save a brother or sister from wandering into sin? Like if the person sitting next to you this morning or the person in your small group was headed down a path towards destruction, would you lie down in the middle of the road and do anything you could to stop them from ruining their lives? Like just in case you think this is like super dramatic, Colin, I, I want to bring us back to the word. Look what James says. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. It's not playing around. And furthermore, do we have people in our lives, in this body of believers, who would do the same for us? 
Are there people at Coastal Church who have an active interest in your walk with Jesus? Who care about your pursuit of holiness? These are weighty questions, church. And we're going to dive into this and more as we close out this series in James. Like I said, verses 13 through 20. And as we'll see, James covers a ton of ground. But he does so through the lens of one giant overarching theme. This idea of a Christ-centered, committed church where believers are locking arms together and praying boldly, confessing sin freely, and guarding and protecting each other from sin willingly. So that's how we'll break this passage down into three separate sections. But as we walk through each topic that James touches, I want to challenge you, to challenge us to keep this main idea at the forefront of our minds. Obedience to the commands in this passage requires wholehearted participation in a committed covenant church community. It requires commitment. Or in other words, we'll see in this text that if we aren't intentional about building, not just building, if we aren't intentional about building and surrounding ourselves with this type of community, then we'll find it very hard to obey passages like James 5. And it might seem like the discipline of prayer and the practice of confessing sin and the commitment to watching over one another are unrelated, but I promise you, James is writing intentionally here giving us riverbanks and guardrails for some essential practices in the Christian life. So here's the plan for this morning. We're going to walk really simply verse by verse through this passage and pull out three disciplines or three practices that we as Christians are to engage in together as a church family. And it's my hope that by the end of our time this morning, we would leave here with a greater love for Jesus and a greater appreciation for his church. All right, three practices. Number one, prayer and community. Number two, I'll give them all to you ahead of time, confessing sin in community. And number three, protecting each other in community. We'll begin with the first topic that James addresses in our passage. Number one in your notes, prayer in community. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So let's start at the top, verse 13. We see that James begins our passage by basically retracing his steps and talking again, touching again on suffering. We saw this last week. Pastor Andrew shared a great encouraging word with us from verses 7 through 11, that we as believers are called to be steadfast and patient in suffering. How do we do that? James actually gives us the key right here. We pray. James asks in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And the word prayer is all over our text this morning, mentioned seven times in the first five verses. And this is fitting, especially as a response to suffering. What James is doing is he's basically bringing us full circle here at the conclusion of his letter. Remember back when we started this series, how James opens the letter, all the way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then just 10 verses later in chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So here in chapter 5, James is giving us bookends, both at the beginning and the last paragraph of this epistle. He's bringing it home for us with an exhortation to pray in the midst of suffering. But not only are we commanded to pray when we're suffering, we're told to pray when we're cheerful, to sing praises when we're cheerful. And this is Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, when he writes, pray without ceasing. We pray when we suffer, we pray when we're happy. 
There's no occasion in the Christian life where prayer is not warranted or welcomed. John Calvin, commenting on this text, wrote that James means here that there's no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Like, isn't that a beautiful thought? Like, God is working all circumstances in my life and your life to invite us into deeper and greater, I would even say sweeter communion with himself. Like, think about this in your own life, whatever you're coming in with today, like that promotion. It's a chance for God to invite you deeper into his presence through prayer. The the layoff, God inviting you into his presence through prayer, giving you a chance to rely greater on him. The proposal, maybe you just got dumped. Whatever it is, like God's using all circumstances, yes, to conform us into the image of Christ, but also to invite us graciously and willingly into his presence. And we do that through communion, and it's achieved through prayer. Prayer is meant to encompass and accompany every aspect, every facet of human life, suffering and joy and heartbreak and triumph and failure. And as we'll see, verse 14, even sickness. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And so James is dialing even more specifically into suffering here, writing about a brother in the church who's sick. And sick to the point where he's probably bedridden because the elders are being called in. He can't gather regularly with the church. Now here's where I want to address a pretty obvious sticking point. I trust that in a gathering this size, many if not all of us have known people, friends and family, who have been sick to the point of being bedridden not able to gather with church. And we prayed with these people, these loved ones. We may have even done what the Bible says here, called in elders, anointed them with oil. The oil here is symbolic. All throughout the scriptures, when someone was anointed with oil, they were being consecrated, which simply means being set apart. And so in this case, they're being set apart with the express purpose of asking God for healing. But here's the thing. Not everyone we've prayed for has had their sickness healed. And here's where I want to be acutely aware of this, sensitive of this even today, because we have several families in this gathering that have prayed and fasted and anointed and brought in elders and petitioned God for healing, and seemingly that prayer has gone unanswered. So what's the deal? James says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. What are we missing? So I'm going to give us two elements, two elements of this verse that we absolutely need to understand that I think might shed some light on this. Number one, we need to understand what exactly is meant by the prayer of faith. And this tracks, right? If the prayer of faith is going to save the one who's sick, we need to know what the prayer of faith is. Number two, we need to understand what's meant by the second clause in this sentence, the Lord will raise him up. There's a ton that's been said about this verse, especially in more charismatic circles, that if we pray with enough faith, or if we muster up enough emotional or spiritual fervor, then our prayers will have more effectiveness here on earth. But there's a problem with this line of thinking. When someone isn't physically healed, it leaves the grieving, bereaved family not only mourning the loss of their loved one, but struggling with guilt, as if they couldn't conjure up enough faith for their prayer to be answered. And I think the Bible actually paints a different picture. We want to 
work hard to always let Scripture interpret Scripture and let the immediate context of a passage shed light on challenging verses. And James does that for us in our passage this morning. To drive home his point, he uses the illustration of the prophet Elijah. Look at me at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so in Elijah's case, this prayer of faith, verse 15, was instrumental in basically shutting down the heavens. Like Elijah prayed for a drought, for God to, to make it not rain, and God answered. It was a miracle. And that's probably why the prayer of faith has come to be associated with these huge, miraculous events. This idea that if you have enough faith, just claim it. Ask passionately, and God will answer. But I think this misses the point of James's illustration. He brings Elijah into this passage, not because Elijah was extraordinary, but because Elijah was ordinary. Think about it. Verse 17 says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And this tracks if you've ever read 1 Kings. Like, think about specifically chapters 17 through 20. In, in that passage in 1 Kings, which details the ministry of Elijah, Elijah gets tired and hungry and cranky, much like my four-year-old after three services on a Sunday. Like, he, he's similar to us. And so, Elijah's praying is used as an example in James 5, not because it produces these miracle-like results, but because it gives us one of the clearest of all illustrations of what it means for anyone to pray with faith. And that's trusting God's revealed word, taking hold of his covenant commitment to it, and then asking him to keep it. Or in other words, what Elijah did was simply to ask God to do what he's already promised he will do. After all, it wasn't Elijah's idea to hold back the rain. It was God's. Think back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. In this passage of the Pentateuch, God is laying out through Moses, blessings for Israel that will come from obedience and punishments that will result from disobedience. And in Deuteronomy 28, one of the punishments for disobedience to the law was a scorching drought or for God to turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. And so like every righteous man, James 5, 16, Elijah's goal was simply to align his praying with what God had already promised he would do in his word. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes it well when he wrote that this then is the prayer of faith, to ask God to accomplish what he's promised in his word. That promise is the only ground for our confidence in asking. Such confidence is not worked up from within our emotional life. Rather, it is given and supported by what God has said in scripture. And so, so hear this, church. The prayer of faith is not dependent upon our ability to muster up enough spiritual zeal and belief while praying but rather it's dependent upon God being true to his promises. And I don't know about you, church, but that is enormously comforting to me because I don't want anything to depend on me. Like, I'm sinful. I'm inconsistent. We're inconsistent. Our faith, sometimes, it wavers. But God is the opposite, and that's what I want us to see. When we are imperfect, God is perfect in all of his ways. When we're inconsistent, God is consistent. The Bible tells us that I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not consumed. And that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
When we are faithless, which happens sometimes when we pray, God remains faithful. He never wavers, and that brings us comfort. Comfort because the results of prayer then aren't up to us. They're up to a holy and loving God, and because of that, we can pray for healing with full confidence, repeating the words of Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Trusting fully that while God has not promised to physically heal everyone in this life, he has promised that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And while he hasn't promised to cure every sickness and disease that we walk through, he has promised to uphold us with his righteous right hand. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us, and he's promised that there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so we pray then with full faith and confidence, trusting 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so, church, the prayer of faith is a prayer that's prayed in full accordance with the will of God, trusting wholeheartedly in the promises of God. And then we can rest fully in the middle part of verse 15, that whether it be here in this life or with Jesus in the next, if the one who has faith, if the one who's sick has faith in Christ, God will raise him up because God has promised a resurrection and God has promised eternal life to those who trust in him. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're mourning the loss of a loved one or you're wrestling in prayer right now in a James 5 kind of way for a loved one, then take heart. If they're a believer in Jesus, God will raise them up. They will be healed. Cancer will not win. Death will not have the last word for either in this life or the next. They'll be raised up. And so what do we do? We pray boldly for healing, trusting that either way, if they're in Christ, God will raise them up. So what I want us to get from these couple verses is what James is doing is broadening our understanding of healing by writing it this way. There's both a physical and a spiritual element to his words. There are a couple of pivot points. We see one of those in the last half of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So there's a blend. And I know that this isn't an easy topic like I mentioned It's personal, intensely personal for many of us because we all have the loved ones that we're praying for and we all have loved ones that we are praying for. And when we lose someone, it can be unimaginably difficult. But remember our opening illustration and the main point, the overarching theme that covers James 5, this idea of a covenant committed church community. The only thing more difficult than experiencing this type of loss would be to experience it alone, isolated. To be isolated in grief with no church community around you would be one of the loneliest experiences imaginable. And throughout this passage on prayer, James is writing with a basic understanding that the church is operating here in real and meaningful, authentic community. So think about it. Are we as Coastal church, are we living our lives in such a way that we know who's suffering in this body of believers? Do we know who's sick? Do we know who's cheerful in this body of believers? Like Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so ask yourself, who are we actively rejoicing with right now? Who are we weeping with? Again, church, I want us to see this in order to obey these commands especially in James 5, to pray for each other, to care for one another, to invite in elders. We have to know each other in real and intimate ways. And so we pray. We pray in community. Practice number two. Second practice, second point. 
Second way that Christians are to engage in as a church, confessing sin in community. We confess sin in community. This brings us to verse 16. James says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I hope you're seeing this in the passage. There's a clear developing one another theme here. And James is continuing this healing line of thought, almost blending together both physical and spiritual healing, not an either or, but a both and. And we've already covered the importance of praying for one another. So let's spend a minute on the other command here, the practice and the discipline of confessing sin to one another. I heard a story, another news story a couple months ago about a woman in Seattle uh, who had a, like a woodland property whose yard backed up to some woods, had a gigantic like grow-it-yourself garden type thing in her backyard. Um, and she made headlines for unfortunate reasons, which I'll get to in a second, but something that she noticed early on in this story was that morning after morning, there was a bear cub that would wander in from the woods and head up to her house and just kind of munch around in her garden. It would eat the stuff that she was planting. And this happened like day after day and week after week. The bear cub would come and just kind of eat around in her garden and go back, meander on up back to the woods. And, and she did what I think everyone would do in that situation. When you see a bear cub, what do you do? You look for its mom. You don't, don't overstep. But she noticed as the weeks went by that there was no mom. That the mom must have either died or wandered off, but this bear cub seemed pretty alone. And so she did what I would wholeheartedly not recommend. She decided, what if I adopt this bear? And so she decides to build an enclosure in her backyard for this bear cub and decides that the bear cub would be better off under her care. And so she continues to feed it vegetables from her garden, and she starts going to Petco and gets these giant 50-pound bags of dog food, thinking that that'll help the bear. And so, like, what happens, right? Like, she feeds the bear, and the bear eats the vegetables and the dog food, and then what happens when little cubs eat? They grow. And so, the bear cub grows, and days went by, and weeks went by, months went by, and she convinces herself that this bear is now her pet. And it's kind of funny, right? But it's about to end tragically. So, so one day, the bear's not a cub anymore, and she decides, okay, I'm going to go into the enclosure that I built for it to open up this 50-pound bag of dog food, and she walks in there, she does that, and the bear turns on her, attacks her, and kills her. We do this with our sin. Like, we, probably most of us in this room, have these little pet sins that we don't think are that bad, that we think are baby little cub, cuddly, cute type sins that maybe they sound awful to the world or maybe they don't sound awful to the world, like gossip, whatever it is. We have these little things that we do and we convince ourselves that our sin isn't gonna hurt anyone, that it's little, that it's tame, that the only person it affects is you, that I can handle it, right? It's just a cub in my backyard and as long as I keep feeding it, it'll be fine. But what happens when we keep feeding our sin? The sin grows, it grows and grows and grows, and then left unchecked, it destroys us. We all have this propensity in us to nurture our sin. It's, I think, innate in many ways. We struggle with this, and we do this. Listen, one of the best ways to combat this is to make a regular practice of confessing sin. And that's exactly why James offers us this point and offers us this command to confess our sins. Think about it, church. Sin wants you alone. 
Like sin wants to isolate you. It wants to convince you that your secret habit isn't hurting anyone, that it's no big deal, that you have it under control. But what happens when we carry this line of thinking out to its conclusion? We run the risk of ruining our lives. And then all of a sudden, we're the ones in California on the dark highway with no clue that there's a cliff coming. We're stuck in our sin, and it can destroy us. And so this is James's word to the church. Do not wait until you're falling off the cliff. Like, we've all heard these rock-bottom stories, and praise God, he is gracious through them. But it doesn't have to get to that point. It doesn't have to get there, church. And so one of the best ways that we can cultivate this habit is to find brothers in our lives and sisters in our lives who can come around us and who we can confess sin to. And if you're sitting here listening to me right now and thinking, Colin, I don't need this, you don't know my deal, I have my stuff under control, then this word is for you, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Listen, we all need this. We all need this. Pastors and elders need this. Young moms need this. Retirees need this. Single people need this. Teenagers need this. This is how the church is supposed to function. And so who is that in your life? Do you have someone in your life right now who you can confess sin to? Who knows you? Like the real you, not the face that you put on on Sunday mornings and act like everything's good in your life, that you got your stuff under control. No, who knows the good and the bad and the ugly of your life? If you don't have someone like that, then hang with me because at the end I'm gonna give us a couple practical steps. But what I want us to see from this point is that James is not offering a suggestion to confess sin, he's offering a command. So we then, as Christians, have a choice. We are either in obedience or disobedience. Finally, number three, the third practice for us as Christians from James 5. We protect each other in community. We protect each other in community. Again, James 5, verses 19 through 20. This is where we started this morning. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I want us to see two critical things in these last two verses. The first will be a caution, and the second will be a comfort. And then we'll close with some final thoughts on application. So first, the caution. The sobering reality that we see in verse 20 is that it's possible that the path of sin can lead to death without the covering for sin. Or to put it more plainly, eternity really is at stake here. It's possible to persist in sin and then die and head to an eternity without heaven, without forgiveness. Now, if someone is wandering into sin and is brought back into faith and genuine repentance, that person is restored, which is the goal of James 5, 19 through 20. It's the goal of any kind of church discipline. Then his soul will be saved from death. Look at verse 20. We see that promise. His soul will be saved from death and he'll be in a relationship with Jesus that covers over his sin. We know this church, the blood of Jesus, is our covering. But if someone doesn't turn back, they persist, then they'll die in their sin without a covering for it. And this is so important for us to see because this letter was not written to lost people. This letter was written to the church. James and the rest of the New Testament writers never make the assumption that everyone who gathers together regularly with the church will persevere to the end and be saved. What they do is they give people the benefit of the doubt and they call everyone who's made a profession of faith brother. Look at verse 19. 
But then James opens up a category for someone to hold the name brother and then for that person to wander away from the truth, never to return. Verse 19, brothers, if any of you wander, he's talking to brothers. So James is assuming that not everyone who he calls a brother is in fact a brother. So his caution then, and our warning here is to the whole church, warning them that straying into persistent sin without ever repenting, without ever turning back, will lead to death without a covering, death without forgiveness. One commentator put it this way, the final proof of who is a true and genuine brother is not profession of faith, but perseverance of faith. And James isn't alone on this either. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John is saying that those who went out from the church or those who persist in sin, unrepentant sin and wandering, revealed to all that they were never really part of the church in the first place. And so James and John, all they're doing here is reiterating the thoughts of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do with this kind of warning? with this, this kind of caution that James is offering here, I'll tell you, we take sin at Coastal really, really seriously. We don't nurture it. And we constantly warn each other of both the dangers and deceitfulness of sin. And, and get this, how it really is possible for someone who professes to be a brother to wander so far off into sin that there remains no covering for sin. And, and it's possible that you're listening to these words right now and you're thinking, Colin, this sounds a lot like my life. Like I profess Christ, claim to be a Christian, I do the Christian thing, I come and gather with the church, my parents think I'm a Christian or my kids' spouse think I'm a believer, but I sin so easily and it doesn't bother me. And I have no genuine love for God in my heart and I haven't for a while. Like if that's you and you're hearing this right now, with all of my heart, I urge you, don't leave here without letting us pray with you. Because there's a warning in this text that it's possible to be on that road and to go so far down that road that you have no covering for sin. And I'm not talking about true believers losing salvation. We'll, we'll clarify this in a minute. But what I'm talking about is it's possible to deceive yourself. It's possible for us in this room to be deceived. And so James's warning to the church is to guard and protect one another. Again, think about the main point. To guard and to restore and to warn each other, we have to know each other. We have to live together in biblical community. We have to be the people, to be the kind of church who will run into the road, shirts above our heads, and do anything within our power to stop others from heading towards destruction. We need to lay down our lives, link arms, because James makes it clear this is real. So that's the caution. But... There's also a deep comfort in these words because while the scriptures are clear, there is a category of people in the church who bear the name of brother who aren't truly saved. There also is a holy and unshakable truth in the word that God will preserve and protect to the end those who are truly his. Because ultimately, our eternal security rests in God's saving and preserving power, not ours. So I'm gonna read a couple of scriptures over us and you're in Christ, just let them wash over you this morning. This should be a great comfort. Philippians chapter one, verse six, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. 
1 Corinthians 1, 8, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 24, he is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Like, listen, these are priceless and, and timeless guarantees from God. God is the author of our salvation from beginning to end. So for the true Christian in the room, we can rejoice knowing that if Jesus saved us, ultimately Jesus will keep us. John 10 makes it clear, no one can snatch us from his hand. We are secure. Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We praise God for this. This is the doctrine of eternal security, a perseverance of the saints. But guess what, church? One pastor put it this way, eternal security is a community project. It takes all of us. And the church is the vessel, the means by which God uses to accomplish perseverance in the lives of his saints. Look at James 5.20 again. The one doing the saving in James 5.20 is actually not God. It's the brother who brings back the wandering soul. He's the one that's saving here. But the brother who won't let the man in his small group leave his wife for a younger woman. It's the man laying down in the middle of the road to stop someone else from going over the cliff. I heard John Piper put it like this once. When a fish is caught... Did the hook catch it, or did the line, or the bait, or the fisherman, or the current that guided the fish, or is it the boss back home that told the fisherman to take the day off? Like, the answer is all of the above, and eternal security works much in the same way. Ultimately, it depends on and rests fully with God. But hear this, God uses the committed community of the local church as the means to accomplish his saving purposes in the lives of his saints. This means, church, that in my sanctification, in my becoming more like Jesus, you have a role to play. It means that in my perseverance towards the end, like in Colin's perseverance, you have a role to play. God's using you to keep me, and vice versa. God's using me to keep you. Like, look around this room for a minute. This building is full. In, in our singing, in our giving, our worshiping, our sitting under the word, our meeting together, we are actively engaging in the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Like, that should be great encouragement to us. Like, when a, when a young family comes in here and is on time week after week, despite the hassle of putting kids or putting clothes on their kids and getting them checked in, like that family is working to build up and encourage and keep the church. When a widow is in here who has attended and worshiped with her husband for decades and now is sitting alone, when that woman is still here, lifting your hands in worship and praising the God of all faithfulness, she's working to uphold and keep and build up the church. Like, we have a role to play here. God uses us to accomplish his saving and preserving purposes. Practice number three, we protect each other in community. I'll close with a practical note, and I'll invite the band back out. They'll lead us in worship here in a second. We see all over this text this emphasis on community. We pray, confess sin, protect each other in the context of a committed local church. So let's finish really simply. I want to show us what we'll miss out on if we neglect these commands, we don't do James 5, and what we stand to gain if we obey these commands. 
So what if we aren't doing this? If you're sitting here this morning and maybe you're not plugged in like you'd want to be and you realize that, that, man, I just come every Sunday and I sit and I listen to a sermon and I sing a couple songs then I leave. And, and that's the extent of your involvement. When you think coastal church, you think about a building that you come to a couple times a month. If you think coastal church and you don't think about family, you just think about an agenda item on your calendar. Like, what are you missing out on? First, like I mentioned at the beginning of our time, you'll find it very hard to obey passages like James 5. There are 59, depending on how you count, one another commandments in the New Testament alone. And you simply can't obey them without having a biblical community around you. You can't rebuke one another, restore one another, build each other up, bear each other's burdens if you don't know one another. You just can't do it. So there's an obedience issue, but there's also a pragmatic issue. You're missing out on a family. Like having people to rejoice with, to grieve with, to confess sin to. Like God has designed the Christian life to be lived corporately, together on mission. And when we view church as something we do, as opposed to a body we're a part of, we miss so much of God's design for the church in the New Testament. So if that's you, what's your next step? Join a small group. Like get to know people because there's a limit to how much we can do in a gathering like this. We can confess sin corporately, but we can't confess it specifically. We can pray for one another corporately, but we can't pray for one another by name and according to specific need. And small groups at Coastal give us the context to walk in that, to do James 5, to pray for one another, to confess sin, to guard and protect one another. So just in a couple weeks, we'll have a new small group season kicking off. Grab a booklet in the back, go to the website, website, join a small group. I talked about the men's event this coming Saturday. We'll have a women's event at the end of the month. Like Pastor Tito and, and Jiba, who lead our men's and women's ministries, they're so good at making sure that everyone who attends one of those has the option to find a mentor, to find someone to confess into, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord our Savior Jesus Christ, as it says in 2 Peter 3, 18. So plug in. That's what we'll miss out on if we neglect Christian community. We'll miss that family. But here's what we'll get. If this is you, and I know looking around seeing faces, many of us are walking in this. If this is us, here's what, here's what you get. You get people who pray with you when you're suffering, who rejoice with you when you're cheerful, who mourn with you when you mourn. Think about my small group. They sit right over there, and they've done that with me just this week because they're a family. And as a church family, we get a chance to build each other up, to hold each other up, knowing, and get this, this is where I'll land, that this church family is united completely under the gospel and the name of King Jesus. Like, that's what unites every legitimate brother and sister in Christ in this room. It's our allegiance to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because you take a gathering of this size, right, we have in this room People from all different socioeconomic statuses. We have different ethnicities in here, different political affiliations. And so what's the one thing that unites this particular group of people? It's Jesus. It's the gospel, the good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that he rose in accordance with the scriptures. That if we were to believe in the gospel, to repent of our sin, to trust in Jesus, and to receive him as Lord and Savior, we can now enter into a covenant, committed church community that can obey every single aspect of James 5. And James 1. And 2. And 3 and 4. Think about James 1, right? Let's not be hearers of the word, church. Let's be doers. 
And that's what we've been saying every single week in this series, that we can do it together only by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. So we're going to sing here in a second. And we're going to go out singing, not Lord, I need you, but Lord, we need you. And so as we do that, I actually want to invite the prayer team up. They're going to be on either side of me. If you need prayer, if you feel like your heart is hardened this morning, if you have something to confess this morning, then all of us in this room can testify that there's no one too far gone. There's no one too far broken because we are a group, a collective group of sinners who have been covered by the grace and mercy of Christ. We've all found grace here. We've all found mercy here. So come and let us minister to you. Lord, we need you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the commands in James 5, for the practices in James 5 that we're called to pray with faith according to your word. We're called to confess sin corporately and individually. We're called to guard and protect each other with a desperation that rivals a man in California on a dark highway at night. I pray for this church, God, that we would do that, that we would be a people that do that joyfully, wholeheartedly. I pray for the one in this room right now who is wrestling and struggling, who feels no love for God, who is concerned about their walk with Christ. I pray that they would not leave here without being ministered to, that whether it's the prayer chapel or up front, that we would receive prayer, we would confess sin. I pray for the men's gathering on Saturday. I pray, God, that it would be a catalyst for Christ-centered relationships, that you would help us to know each other, God, because like we've seen, we can't obey these commands without knowing each other. I pray for our small groups at this church, God. I pray for every small group leader within the sound of my voice, God, that you would build them up and prepare them to walk in grace and in leadership this fall. And that you would use our groups at this church to help us to walk in obedience to James chapter five. And so God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. And we confess corporately together that we need you in every hour, every aspect, every element of our lives, we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.